Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn this thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton. For the stay. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, journalism, and this week we'll take another look at one of New York's most infamous crimes in Netflix's When They See Us. Plus, we'll offer our first impressions on Crooked Media's new podcast, This Land, and a very big true crime podcast update from a show that is very close to home. Joining me to get that done, and maybe some more, is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist and sexy-voiced hunk, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and certified cat lady, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hello, yes. Um, my certified cat lady status is kind of waning right now because my cats won't listen to me. They've <laughs> they've taken over the dog's recuperation bed. That's right. They're assholes. <laughs> This is what we've been trying to tell you for years. Cats are assholes. Pretty much. No, pretty much. And finally, our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy and our Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Happy Pride Month, Rebecca. Yes. Happy Pride Month to all of you. We are happy to be allies. I saw the Facebook thing. You mean our art, our new art for our logos? Yeah. Well, we don't want a virtue signal, so let's not talk about it too much. Needless to say, (laughs) we're happy to be allies. So to kick off the show, I want to do something that we often do on the show that Kevin often introduces, but because Kevin is still trying to rest his voice a little bit, we have a guest with us, well not with us, but a guest of the show who's going to take care of this little element for us. That was one of our favorite listeners, Tom Haggy or Hagee, not sure how to pronounce it, who sent us that little video of him filling in for you, Kevin. How did he do? He did a great job. Might have to have him back for a couple of weeks. Who knows? <laughs> I like Tom because Tom Tom says he often agrees with me, so that, that makes me feel happy. So <laughs> I'll have him back. Well, there was huge news related to the Bear Brook podcast this week, and I want to get your reactions to this because it was also a local story for us here in New Hampshire. Um, as you all know, we didn't re- technically review the Bear Brook podcast on this show because I helped produce it a little bit and that would be weird but we, one of us was on it and you were actually on it yes yeah. and I think that you know after the the hooks it case after the pocket case you know there was really a feeling that yeah th- you know we this could be done if the resources are set aside mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is it the biggest most famous cold case in New Hampshire the pocket case I think? I, I think up until yours <laughs> 
Yes. <laughs> but we all listened to it, obviously, and we all really liked it. Um, but before we talk about the news here, let's just hear from someone who knows a little bit more than we do about it. This is just a short clip, so we'll talk about it on the other side. My name is Jason Moon. I am host of Bear Brook, a podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio. Everyone knows that by now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There was huge news around your podcast last week uh, that I'm assuming that if anyone is listening to this part of my show, they probably know a little bit about it. But can you give the recap of what happened around Bear Brook last week for like the eight people who wouldn't know? (laughs) Yes. So, yeah, some very big news. Uh, we we finally got uh, some identities of some of the victims in the in the Bear Brook case that was sort of you know the whole reason for the podcast, and it was news that we had been waiting for. We were just sort of expecting it um, and waiting for it to be confirmed for about seven months. So it was a long period of anticipation and fretting and and then finally it all it all happened last week. So Laura Bricker asked me to ask you something. Okay, I'm ready. How hard was it for you to keep quiet since last fall when you met with a super librarian lady? Now I should explain that what she's talking about is you said just said now in a very restrained way. We were waiting <laughs> for it to be confirmed, but the truth is you knew because you had interviewed Becky Heath, this amateur investigator. Yeah. You knew and you had to sit on it. How hard was that? Laura wouldn't have been able to do it. Uh, <laughs> it was it was difficult. So I met with Becky, heard her story, and then saw some of the photos of the victims when they were alive. And at that point, I was personally convinced, based on the the likeness, how closely they resembled the composite images, and the other details. I thought, wow, this is this is it. This is them. But then. You know, we didn't know for sure. I mean, I was convinced, but but she could have been wrong and I could have been wrong. And the worst possible thing we could do as as a podcast is to put out names of the victims and then find out some months later that we were that we were wrong. Right. You know, it would have ruined everything, basically. In that sense, it was an easy decision to make in the sense that there's no way we're going to go forward with this until there's DNA confirmation that's a thousand percent confirmed. Also, knowing that there's not really a significant public interest in having the names, uh, you know, it's more important for the family to know, of course. But in terms of like, it doesn't affect like public health or public safety if, you know, listeners know the names or don't know the names. So that those were sort of the reasons for why we waited. But then personally, waiting for those seven months, I would say... The hardest moments were when people would ask about like, well, what's going on in the case now? Or is there going to be more Bear Brook or things like that? You know, when we did these live shows in in Brooklyn and and Boston, I think it came up at both. And I mean, you just kind of had to say, I think I just said, stay subscribed. Well, one woman did say, is it true that they've been identified and they're working on it? And you were like... We've heard that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like we're following that. Um, so, yeah, it was difficult. It was difficult, um, but I'm glad that we did it. So, Lara, would you have been able to keep this to yourself for seven months as Jason and the Bear Brook team? Not did. for seven minutes. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That would have, like, I would have just, like, 
burst into flames trying to keep my mouth shut. So I believe, though, that that may have solved the mystery of why Jason keeps his his uh, shirt buttoned up because he's buttoning in <laughs> the information. Well, funny enough, uh, in our Patreon after show that's in the feed right now, uh, drops the same day as this show. I actually have the whole in my whole interview with Jason Moon, and we do talk about that top button. Uh, we also talk about what it was like having a tiny role in actually solving this huge mystery and how they put together that episode seven so quickly after that press conference. So, Laura, what did you think when you heard this news and what did you think of how it came together? So I saved it, even though I saw first thing in the morning that it dropped. I wanted to be able to like listen with no distractions. So I was like dropped my son at school, got my coffee. And then I was like, OK, time to walk and listen. I was speechless a few times because you could tell, and, and I'm glad that I got some clarification on how it was put together, the um, introduction part where we have some information with the librarian. First of all, awesome, yet another woman hero in this story. You betcha. Everybody in this story that's involved is a woman, badass woman solving crime. It's like my my uh, dream. But there was a lot that was very emotional listening to this. And um, I will tell you the last line in that podcast, I stopped and I actually kind of started crying. It was, um, and there was some really good um, sound effects. I'm just going to say rocks also um, (laughs) made me tear up. Yeah. Just going to say. But but it was just, it was so well told um, because I'm thinking, oh, the press conference comes out. There's no way in hell that they're going to be able to like make this into a narrative by tomorrow. And yet they did. And they told it in such a way that it was just so... It was it was just really engaging and um, it, just wonderful. Yeah. I mean, Kevin, were you surprised? I mean, I know that we, you and I, because you were kind of on the inside of the fact that this news was coming. One of the things that really surprised me that I talked with Jason about in the after show is that the investigators in the case, the cold case unit in the AG's office, acknowledged the role of the podcast in helping piece this all together. Did it surprise you that they did that? Did it surprise me a little bit? Because sometimes... Um, authorities are reluctant to do that. But I, I was actually, I know there is an actual sound bite that where they explicitly say that. On October 11th of 2018, last fall, that same professional researcher who we later identified as Rebecca Heath, a librarian from the state of Connecticut, listened to the NHPR Bear Brook podcast and remembered a posting about Sarah McWaters from 2000. And I was more surprised that it didn't wind up in the podcast. Uh, I don't know if you feel like, you know, they don't want to blow their own bugle, but I think that's important to the story and the podcast and the crime. To just have Jason say that is one thing, but to have the authorities acknowledge that, you know, the power of the podcast, I think, uh, was something that I, if I'm going to, you know, ding Bearbrook for any points, I'd say, you know, you, you missed an opportunity there to really say that. But Becky Heath said it was because of the podcast. Yeah, but it's, what does it matter that the cops said it or not in the podcast? Because they're the investigators yeah. and they're the ones that often just will just say, oh, no, we worked hard on this for a million years. And it was we are the ones that solved it ourselves. Hmm. It's the reverse pain, Lindsay. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Which makes it the alpha move. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. true, Toby. I would say that is about as opposite as Pan Lindsay as you can get. Now, you guys actually, Laura and Toby, met Jason Moon and Taylor Quimby, who make the show, uh, last yeah. weekend, and you hung out with them for a couple days. Is the it, boys. <laughs> you call them the boys. Is it weird to have this big news event break and have this episode come out? That Which, by the way, has 
renewed interest in the podcast, the download numbers of this podcast have skyrocketed because a lot of people are discovering it now for the first time because it's tied to this news event. Is it weird for you to sort of now like know the people who are in the middle of this? Because very often like we meet podcasters like after they've made a thing and you kind of met them and got to know them before this big thing happened. Is it was it fun for you to hear their voices on the show? And what did you think as the news was unfolding, Toby? Yeah, I mean, it's cool. I mean, meeting them and getting to know them a little bit and you know, they're both like super nice guys and uh, cool to hang out with. They, they deserve any sort of bump or kudos or more listenership or whatever sort of good things come the way uh, of that podcast. So, so that was good. I mean, it also, I mean, did they know at the time that this was going to be coming so soon? Uh, we found out that the press conference was happening the day before the press conference was happening. We knew it was, we had heard it could be sometime in June, but we had also heard that it could be sometime in May, and we had also heard that it could be sometime in April. I mean, it was like every single month there was... It could have happened at any moment. It could happen every yeah, moment. so but, it's just pins and needles all yes, the time. Yes, except that Jason's sources, you know, like the family members and so forth, you know, they were basically saying to him, like, we'll let you know when there were being like flown out or whatever. Yeah. So, but no, when we hung out, when we were all hanging out together, they were all at PodX, but imagine if they'd gone to CrimeCon. And that was on the table. They were, oh they never God. would have been there for the big finale. That's right. That's right. Wow. It would have been, they wouldn't have gone. Honestly, well, we would have turned around home. and come, yeah. <laughs> that wouldn't have happened. It was that, that, that day was a crazy, crazy news day in New Hampshire. It really, really was. And, um, you know, three of the four victims being identified in this like 40 year old case. It was crazy. It was really, really yeah. crazy and, and very satisfying and obviously very tragic, but also just a really interesting day to work in news and an interesting day to sort of be in the background working on a podcast. I will just say, yes, um, I'd like to add I'm now the captain of the Taylor and Jason fan club. <laughs> um, I got to ride back to New England with them from Pod X uh, because they missed their plane. I secured them a seat in my row because I wanted to hang out with them. And uh, Taylor and I had the same taste in movies. So um, we are now all like best friends. That's all. They're pretty great. They're pretty great. If you want to hear my conversation with Jason in which he talks about all the stuff that we talked about and kind of what it's like being the podcaster who helped solve the mystery, even though he doesn't actually like taking credit for it, check out our Patreon after show right now. Also in our Patreon right now is uh, Laura's latest Leave it to Bricker episode in which she stalks Mayor Pete Buttigieg and uh, gets him to eat a cookie. And um, <laughs> this episode of Toby's Book Club uh, should be out by the time this episode drops, a new episode. And if not, it'll be out in just a day or two. So it is definitely worth checking out our Patreon right now. Now, Kevin, I'm going to ask you to do something I wouldn't normally ask you to do. Since we're talking about podcasts produced by the place I work, can you just give a plug for the new one that just came out this week that I know you really liked? Yeah, I I really like this, and you can read my review in Vulture on it. Um, it's called Supervision, and it's by Emily Corwin, uh, who's now at Vermont Public Radio. It's just four parts. Each episode's about 20, 25 minutes. It's looking at uh, life on parole and what happens to uh, folks when they come out of jail and what awaits them, they're not exactly free and they're not exactly incarcerated. And uh, like all really good podcasts, the story goes in a direction that you don't anticipate it will. And I think it's really, really good. I know that you um, didn't have a real role. I didn't. In, I, I heard mean, it at the same time as you did. You did the you did the uh, website. Right. But I literally didn't listen to a minute yep. of it. So I didn't like know so what I it was feel comfortable be. saying. Uh, unlike Bear Brook, where I knew a lot of what was going on behind the scenes. Because you're in it? 
<laughs> you know, I, I would say I was really supr- pleasantly surprised at at the story, and you know, there's a, there's a couple of really really surprising things that get caught on tape. I loved it as well. Um, I covered the area where the man that they're following this podcast, Josh, uh, returns to after he's released from prison up in Berlin, which, by the way, is I've also been there, so that's also kind of fun. Um, but Isn't that where the blackout was? Yes, it's where blackout was. That is where the set. blackout yeah. was. It's where my college roommate was from. But when he was released to the Rochester area in this podcast, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is like – that was like my first territory that I covered when I was a public defender investigator, and I could relate to so much of basically what Emily Corwin was doing in this. I was like, yeah, I did that, trying to find people, and just sort of the sad and really overwhelming sort of task that people have when they get out of prison, trying to you know get themselves a job, and they don't have a car, and they don't have a license. And, and then when, uh, I'm not going to, this is a little spoiler, but there's a a town that this man moves to, Milton. And I was like, oh, Jesus, like <laughs> Milton. I mean, there's like nothing yeah. there. So, um, it, but there's it's more just, there than in Milton Mills, right? Which is Milton the next Mills, one over. Yeah. yeah. I once interviewed a man in Milton Mills in like a teepee. <laughs> yeah. And I have never forgotten that experience. Like 300 he was so see. drunk. He couldn't even like speak more than like one sentence. Huh. And I was like, this is just not happening. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it sheds light on, you know, the other side of uh, the criminal justice system, what happens after somebody gets out. And it was just super well done. Well, it does and it doesn't. And that's why I love it. I honestly love it, too. I heard listen to it with Kevin for the first time, listen to it together. I love it because of what it doesn't do. I think it has a lot of restraint. And I think it is very tempting in this genre for reporters when they have a story that takes a turn that they weren't expecting to try to make it something huge or something more or like and it didn't she just continued to follow the story of this one guy and it ended when it should have ended and it just it had what it should have had and it didn't have anything it did, shouldn't have had and I thought that that showed a, a tremendous amount of journalistic restraint and I'm really like proud of my colleagues for putting it together I like I said I listened to it for the first time just with you and I I was blown away so check out Supervision you can find it wherever you get your podcast. There's also a website, supervisionpodcast.com, which I really recommend checking out the website. A really smart person made it mm-hmm. um, <laughs> using Squarespace. Anyway, <laughs> all right. Thank you for giving that the plug, Kevin. I just I want to sure. plug my colleagues, but have it come from someone else, which is also weirdly nepotistic, but that's cool, right? Yeah. Well, for- it's, it, this is what I do. It's my show. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, moving on. The folks that brought us Pod Save America and other political talkers are weighing in with a true crime podcast of sorts. Crooked Media's This Land touches on a murder conviction from 2000, but the legal case has less to do with what happened and more to do with where it happened. Patrick Murphy was found guilty of murder by a jury in McIntosh County and a judge sentenced him to death. Oklahoma, 1999. A man stabbed on the side of the road left to die. This murder would set the stage for a Supreme Court battle over the reservation of five Native American tribes, including mine. A man convicted of first-degree murder will no longer face a death sentence after an appeals court ruled the state of Oklahoma can't prosecute him. This isn't a story about who Patrick Murphy killed. It's about where he did it. Patrick Murphy says the state can't prosecute him because the murder happened on his tribe's reservation. 
Oklahoma argues that reservation no longer exists. This land asks questions about justice for a crime, not from 20 years ago, but from nearly 200 years ago. What's at stake are a Native people's autonomy and the very map of the United States. We're going to be talking about plot points from the first couple of episodes of this land. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the time code listed in our show notes. And as only two episodes of this land have dropped as of this taping, this will be a short first look review. Now, my first uh, question for you guys is um, this, I think, was marketed as a true crime podcast. I mean, we sort of saw it in some of those categories and some of those write ups. Yep. But that's kind of a misnomer. This is really a podcast about debate over Native American land rights. Right, Kevin? Yeah, it's more of a political podcast. And the fact that, you know, somewhere along the immediate future, a la Jason Moon, uh, we know that there's going to be a major development. We should hear the Supreme Court decision on some Monday in June. It seems like this is really more about what that decision is. Hmm. It doesn't really have anything to do with Murphy or where the crime was committed or, you know, whether it was a, you know, a right prosecution, it certainly turns on this land issue and it's a pretext for getting into the political story, which is what they want to do. Well, that was one thing that was confusing to me is that we know the Supreme Court decisions are coming out now on Mondays. Mm -hmm. So there have been two episodes of this out. Do you think there's a second plan for if the decision comes out this coming Monday, they're not going to, you know what I mean? Production wise, I was sort of wondering about that. I mean, I think we know In the Dark has a plan because they've been waiting for the Flowers decision. Right. And I'm sure they have an episode kind of like Bear Brook did that is a lot of it is produced and they're kind of waiting to do that final bit of reporting. But this land, I mean, I'm just curious about why the timing of the of the drop of this podcast, having only two episodes out now, knowing the decision come out, come out Monday. I mean, it's you can argue that they wanted to catch the wave yeah. of the news, you know, while it's cresting. Uh, I'm sure they have an affirmed episode and a denied episode. Mm, that's interesting. Because, I mean... How else? I, I don't. I don't know what day of the week this drops. Mondays. The podcast drops yeah, on Mondays. Yeah, as and the decisions do too. So, so it could drop. The podcast drops in the morning, and then in two hours later. Yep. Yeah, that's eh, that's maybe not. It's a great problematic, idea. right? It is. Yeah, I would have. <laughs> I would have planned the <laughs> drops for. Tuesdays, I would have put but, this out eight weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's okay to be a little late behind it, but you don't want to be hours early and then yeah. Right. Right. Well, I just think that the the argument for doing it now is that. If there isn't like a podcast around it or something else, I don't think anybody's going to pay any attention to the decision, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's just going to be one of a bunch, and there'll be some people in Oklahoma who care. But the sort of larger issue and the larger conversation, which is how we treated and continue to treat like treaties we had with Native American nations, I don't think that would be highlighted mm. that when that decision comes down. If it wasn't for the context of having, in this case, a podcast – to let people know what the issues are. So when it does come up, I mean, it's similar to Curtis Flowers, right? Where like for the most part, if there hadn't been a podcast about them and it had still gone to the Supreme Court and the thing was decided, like not that pe many people would either care or know what it was about or it wouldn't get much of anything. But the podcast is the reason that case made it to the Supreme Court, Toby. Right, right. I'm, <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a an imperfect comparison, reason. but it's the, yeah. only other, it's the only other thing that I know that's going on. I'm going to disagree slightly with Toby. I think that if the ruling is affirmed, it's a major news story. It's mm. not something people will have yeah. wondered about. If it's overturned and the status quo remains, 
yeah, people, it's going to be like the great what if legal s- story. But if the Supreme Court rules that half of Oklahoma still belongs yeah. to Native American tribes, and what does that mean for? Tell us that's huge. What does it mean for that's taxation? Huge. And what does it mean for property rights? And what does it mean for yeah. self determination? And I mean, just it ends up being a, a big disruptor yeah. of the status quo. So, yeah, I mean, if, if it's affirmed, it's a big wave that they suddenly find their surfboard on. But if it gets overturned and the status quo remains, I agree with Toby, it'll be kind of like, well, we wouldn't have cared at all about this and story. And now we're mad. Yeah, because there's a lot of, there's a, you know, a lot of big swing cases that go to the Supreme Court that could certainly upend a lot about modern society, but they never do. Right. You know? And Native American issues don't get covered. It's true. It's true. I mean, you, don't, you don't see anything about this on CNN. That's right. I did love the guy who talked about sort of, and, and by the way, in the podcast, if you haven't heard it, listeners, the people in the podcast are largely like indigenous people help telling us the story. Rebecca Nagel identifies herself as a member of Cherokee Nation, which we'll talk about in a second, because I think that's an interesting point that everyone identified that way. But the they do use the term Indian law and Indian rights and Indian issues. So if we use that term, like we're using it because the podcast used it, and we understand that not everybody like uses those words interchangeably. So that being said, Laura Bricker, I know you yes. were tweeting about and Facebooking about the story at the center of this podcast. You find it really fascinating. Tell me why. I, I find it really fascinating just because I think, you know, like Kevin was saying, sort of the ramifications of if this decision is upheld, what this is going to mean. But I think the first thing that, you know, when I was listening to this that I was thinking of was this book that I read, um, The Roundhouse, a few years ago. And it was it was a similar kind of story in the, in that there was a crime, there was a rape that happened, and a Native American woman that was raped. And the question was, was she raped on tribal lands or not on tribal lands? And you know, so that was sort of at the center of the case. But then also her husband was, I believe he was part of, he was like a tribal judge on the reservation. Right. Um, it was in North Dakota where this crime had happened. So it was the same sort of interesting question of like how the location of where a crime happens relates to how that crime is handled right. and how justice is handed out. And so that was also interesting, you know, listening to this case, I, you know, and we heard a lot more about that in the first episode. The second episode, for me, got a little more bogged down in the legal argument and what the justices were were or were not going to say. So I was more interested just in sort of the crime and where it happened and how those type of cases are handled. Right. So I have a, a, a kind of journalistic question for you guys. Mm-hmm. Crooked Media does not pretend to be a center of the line, unbiased journalism organization. They make Pod Save America, which clearly has a lot of liberal voices on it. They're very left leaning. And this podcast is too. This podcast, Rebecca Nagel very clearly talks about the liberal justice as being like the good guys and the conservative justice as being the bad guys. And she very clearly states that there's an outcome that is good for her and her people and an outcome that is bad for her and her people. Yet the podcast is written very straight. I'm not talking about production. We're going to talk about that in a second. It's written very straight and it's written very journalistically with, you know, narration, tape, narration, tape, legal experts, you know, kind of like structured that way. I found myself wondering as I was listening to it, like if you just came to this as a a, a news consumer, a podcast consumer, uh, what was the term that Amber Hunt came up with last week? Podcast journalism. Podcast journalism consumer. 
you know, without sort of the, you know, basic understanding of who it was that was making this, is it too journalistic to be so clearly advocacy? It's advocacy. It's not so much straight journalism as advocacy, but it's not presented that way in its skin. I'd quibble with the terms. Yeah. Um, I mean, advocacy, they're not actively doing something to affect the outcome. Mm. Uh, but are they cheerleading? Probably a little bit. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Toby? I, I think there's a lot at stake for these tribes in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't really see it as advocacy journalism to make the stakes to a certain population clear. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see what the problem is with that. And especially it's a it's a viewpoint that, again, is not normally represented in mainstream media to me, I don't, I don't see why that's advocacy journalism as much as it is journalism. It's like, this is what's going to happen. This is what's at stake. This is the history. You can say, well, I'm on the other side of this. Like, I prefer the side of some guy who bought land from a Cherokee in the 1940s and, like, they should be able to, you know, mine in their backyard if they want to or whatever it's going to be. I guess I didn't really find it advocacy as much as it's telling a pretty accurate picture of something from one side of an argument. Right. And that to me doesn't seem like biased. It seems descriptive, which is sometimes what journalism should be doing. Yes, except Rebecca Nagel says which outcome she wants to have happen. She says that in the podcast. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying that that is a bad thing for this podcast to do. I'm just not sure the presentation of it fits that like it's not like undisclosed where they say we want this person to be out of prison so we're just going to tell you all the reasons why that should happen and they do do a lot of actual reporting where they actually say this happened and this happened and this happened and there are these facts and these facts and these facts and there's just this judge and this jury and here are the trial transcripts but ultimately they're telling you like what they want the outcome to be And that's what advocacy journalism is. Like, we're going to do the journalism, but we also have a point of view and we're going to be clear about it. I'm not saying anything wrong with doing that. It's just that this podcast, I don't think, is on its face presented that way until it is. That's my issue sort of with the presentation of it, not the production style, which is separate, uh, but that. Yeah, I I can see your point and I can see – but I also think that, you know, Rebecca – identifying right up front, I'm part of Cherokee Nation. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like when we listen to Connie Walker, I feel like that gives her a much better insight into covering the issue. Absolutely. And what it means to everybody that's involved. The only time that I felt like I didn't really like the direction where her personal feelings were coming out is I felt like she went a little bit over the top talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and And I was like, that was when I was like, you know, stop talking. Did you mean when she did that thing where she was apologizing for her opinion about Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Yes. Yes, I was like, bothered me too. Before you think I'm coming for Ginsburg, please know as a woman, I appreciate her work on gender equity. And of course, I don't want her to go anywhere in the next few years. But on this case, she is the justice I am most worried about. Of the liberal justices, it's Ginsburg who's the most likely to vote against the tribe. So I was like, stop. But I I actually liked that I was like, here is somebody from this community who is talking about her own family, like, land right in the beginning. And I was like, that was really interesting to listen to. Like, this is where, you know, we're out walking around and this is where it is. 
Nancy and I are standing on a small hill just outside of Jay, Oklahoma. Everything's pretty messy because it's been muddy around here <laughs> with all this rain we've had. I to find us on a map, go to where Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Missouri meet. Then move your finger a little to the left, west, just into Oklahoma. And, and so I felt like that gave us as listeners a little bit more of a reason to listen because we're kind of pulling for the people that are involved totally. when we're listening to that. You're right. And I, I agree with you and that this is the right voice to tell this story. I completely agree with that. The Ruth Bader Ginsburg thing was problematic because she bent over backwards to apologize for criticizing or apologize for, you know, disparaging or what she thought would be disparaging. It was almost like, hey, listen, I know if you're liberal and you're listening to this, you may not like me saying something bad about Ruth. But and it was like, you don't need that. Just say the thing. You know what I mean? So finally, I do want to address what is a little bit of an elephant in the room for me, which is the production of this podcast. I don't want to make this about the way Rebecca Nagel talks, because as far as I'm concerned, it's not about how she talks. I mean, not voice quality. It's not her talking voice about quality. Performance. Yes. Kevin, what do you think about the production of this podcast? If you're talking about the way she delivers the narrative and delivers her, her lines, to me, she doesn't sound interested in what she's saying. She's the right person to tell the story, but she could use a little more direction as far as putting some more energy into it. In the summer of 1999, Patsy Jacobs was living with Patrick Murphy in Vernon, Oklahoma, a place so small the census doesn't count it as a town. Before him, Patsy had been married to George Jacobs. They had a son together. They all lived in Vernon. And I know I'm one to talk right now, or I'm not, trying not to raise my voice at yeah, all. Yeah. But the medium steals from your energy already. And if you don't pump yourself up a little bit, you're going to sound like you're really down. And, you know, while she may feel like she's drawing from that public radio delivery style, it just doesn't sound to me like she's even interested. And so it's hard for me to be interested. Yeah, I did find myself rewinding a lot and re-listening to sections so I could actually hear what she was trying to deliver. And I don't actually blame Rebecca Nagel. I think her voice is great. And it's I think not her, about the tone of her voice. It's, it's not. It's not about the quality of her voice. It's about the read and the lack of direction. Yeah. And you know how I you can tell? If you listen to one of her ad reads, which right. there was clearly some direction. Listening makes us smarter, more connected people. It makes us better partners, parents, and leaders. And there's no better place to start listening than Audible. She sounds like she should sound in the podcast. Or maybe she feels liberated from what she may view as a very heavy, consequential script. Mm. And, you know, she's carrying the weight of all of that. You know, the idea that talking about audiobooks is more freeing, it's going to cut a rug a little more. I think there's also an issue with the editing of her narration. There's a lot of run-on sentences where clearly she took a break and they were edited together. I actually have a great example of that right here. The place where George Jacobs was killed and all the land around it was owned communally by his tribe. Creek Nation. But in the early 1900s, white settlers, squatters, really, wanted that land. So the government came and divided it up. It is very important to put space between someone's sentences when they're talking. It is very important to have a beat of a listener being able to actually absorb what you just said. I do believe I would have much less of a problem with the production of this podcast if whoever did the mix and edit it together, A, 
didn't use really boring Blue Dot Sessions music beds that are available for every podcast in America at a super low level where they were just background music and not actually dynamic in any way. And also provided some space for what Rebecca Nagel was saying to breathe and have it be narration and not just reading. That is my huge problem with this podcast. Crooked Media is a very successful company, and I think they could have done better resourcing this and making it sound a whole lot better. Couple quick things I just wanted to address. Laura Bricker, you really like the writing around Rebecca's description of the land rights issue being like a cake. Yeah, it, it explained sort of there was there was it wasn't a straightforward answer to the land rights and how it worked. And I believe they they she described it as they still own the cake, but not the frosting. Yeah. So they own like the mineral rights, but not the for some reason that particular line really stuck with me. Yeah. Uh Toby Really interesting question here, and I'm just curious to your opinion. I mean, what Rebecca really gets to is that the Supreme Court might just kind of rule against the tribe here because it would be super inconvenient. They would like sort of cite like the other greater consequences here. But at the same time, she's not wrong that that's also like a messed up thing to do. What do you think about that? You know, it's it's inconvenience based on 200 years of of racism, you know, and treachery regarding treaties that have been signed. And so again, when you say it's going to be super inconvenient, the problem is, is that that the situation that's going to be inconvenienced is unjust to begin with and was always unjust and was actively supported by the government or the government turned a blind eye to it. Mm. I mean, you know, you could say it's super inconvenient for all these plantations in the South not to have slaves. You know, how are they going to get their stuff done? Exactly. And that's that's not an argument. <laughs> oh, wait, I said exactly. You know? I don't mean exactly like I agree with that argument. I mean, that is a good comparison. The other thing, listening to this, and, and, and not to like throw in a Patreon promotion in the middle of our thing, but this is what uh, when we talked about Killers of the Flower Moon on Patreon, it's all in the same area. That's right. And it's got some of the same issues. White people tried to get a piece of this huge track of reservation land. Right. All right. Well, let's do what we do, except let's do it sort of with an acknowledgement that we're only a couple episodes into this podcast. So I'm going to just modify this a little bit. I'm going to ask you, panel, thumbs up or thumbs down. Are you going to continue listening to this land from Crooked Media? Thumbs up or thumbs down? I'm going to start with you, Lara Bricker. Um, I'm going to give one more episode a try. I really liked the first episode. The second one lost me a little bit, but I'm really super interested in this whole issue where, you know, where the crime happened and how it's relating to this bigger legal issue about the Native American land. So I'm going to give one more episode a listen. So that is a... uh, That's a thumbs up for now. That's a thumbs up for now. That's right. But we'll talk again next week. What about you, Toby Ball? Yeah, I mean, I'm a a thumbs up. This is totally in my wheelhouse. This is the kind of stuff I'm really interested in and would read a book about it or or whatever. So I really like it. I I realize that there are aspects of it that are lacking, but I think it's a a really important story that's not really being covered anywhere else. You know, I think I I, I just in general like it a little bit more than you guys do, but I also, it's just, the subject is perfect for me. Yeah. (sighs) <sighs> this is tough. Only because I know, I'm already anticipating all the tweets and emails that I'm going to get after I say this. I'm going to give it a thumbs down. 
and it is not because I don't think it's really important, and it is not because I don't think the writing is good or the reporting is good. I think the reporting is fine, despite what I said earlier about the skin of it. Like, I'm fine with the point of view journalism taken. I'm completely fine with it. And I do think Rebecca Nagel is talented and is telling the story like in a way that it deserves to be told. I don't think I'm going to keep listening because unless somebody tells me, oh, shit, like episode four of This Land is incredible. You need to get back on because Crooked Media, I'm sorry. I know people love this company and they're great. And I listen to other podcasts they make. They really did this story a disservice with how it was put together. The editing of the narration is abominable. It's among the worst I've ever heard in a podcast produced by professional producers not the narration itself, the editing of the narration. The music mixing is awful. And it's not even starting and stopping at natural places. It's just like this constant like Blue Dot Sessions soundtrack under the whole thing for no reason. It doesn't punctuate. It doesn't swell. I just find the production of it doing such a disservice to the story. And this is a thing that I get pushback on. A podcast like this, especially one that is about a difficult subject or a, a weighty subject, It has to be entertaining. Nobody would say that a New York Times article could be poorly written, but we should read it because it's important. It has to be well written because then people will read it because it's important. Podcasts are the same way. If they're not well produced, if they're not listenable, if they're not, yes, entertaining in that way where you want to keep going, even if it's difficult, then they get a thumbs down for me. And this one does right now. What about you, Kevin? I'm a thumbs down, I guess. I hate saying thumbs down after two episodes. I don't feel it's like for it's for now. It's a for now. It's a for now. I mean, I still don't feel like it's very fair, but I uh, but if you're asking am I going to be downloading the next episode? Probably not. I'm more interested in the actual court case and mm-hmm. the news story. So I will be watching for that and if it's something consequential, I'm probably jumping back into this podcast to get mm-hmm. some more context. But otherwise, I, you know, I don't know, the opening salvo here does not carry me. It does intrigue me about the court case, but not so much about the podcast. So we'll be keeping an eye, I guess, on the Supreme Court and keeping an eye on, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. RBG. RBG. Moving on. In a world where people are increasingly craving wrongful conviction stories, Netflix has decided to put out a miniseries on one of the biggest ones in recent history. Directed by Ava DuVernay, When They See Us reveals the 1989 story of the Central Park Five, showing how the five black teenagers were convinced to talk themselves into convictions for a rape they didn't commit and the challenges they faced even after serving their sentences. Who you were in the park with? I don't know names. I just got lost. Where did you see the lady? One, one lady. The female jogger was severely beaten and raped. Every black male who was in the park last night is a suspect. I need all of them. What's going on with my son? Your son was involved in rape in Central Park. What? No, no, it's, no, 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 Wait a second, wait a second. They saw you rape. The lady. I didn't see a lady or hit anyone. I didn't see any lady. Kevin. I didn't see any lady. I want to see my son right now, right now. Whatever they said I did, I didn't. I know what. 
The four parts of when they see us deftly tell different phases of a familiar story. While your blood will boil over the injustices, your heart will break over the performances of nine different actors portraying the men from arrest to exoneration. We are going to be talking about plot points for when they see us. So to remain spoiler free, go to the time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. I think it would be difficult to not start this by talking about the performances in this miniseries, right, Kevin? They are mm-hmm. extraordinary soup to nuts. There's not a single performer in this show There's that not is not a extraordinary. Weak link in either we'll call them the young cast and the adult cast. I mean, it's it's fantastic, especially especially Jarrell Jerome mm-hmm. as Corey Wise, who plays both young Corey and adult Corey. In just a tour de force performance, you cannot take your eyes off of him. I gained letters, phone calls. I don't know, kid. You know what? Let me check, all right? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, he was known for, before this, for Moonlight. Mm-hmm. He really is a force. Right. In, in this, and... Uh, you know, like when we don't see him in episode three, mm. his absence is is really felt. Right. I also thought that the young actor who played Kevin, I think it's Asante Black, this is his first IMDb entry. Wow. And he just had the saddest, most vulnerable look on his face. And they all played it with a, you know, with a sense of vulnerability, which really pulled at my heartstrings. I mean, obviously you knew that this wasn't going well for them and they were going to get railroaded because we know the story but it really got me to a real emotional point just you know watching those performances yeah now Lara Bricker there was a prosecutor in the original Central Park 5 case who has gone on to greater things Ugh. as an author her name is Linda Fairstein Rebecca no, that's true <laughs> And your first note in your notes to me is in all caps. I hate that prosecutor woman so much. Of course, is Linda Fairstein played by Felicity Huffman in the movie. Uh, much beleaguered in real life, Felicity Huffman. <laughs> I know. Talk about weird timing, huh? Uh, give me your thoughts. Go ahead and unload on that, Laura Bricker. So unlike Toby, you know, I haven't watched the Ken Burns documentary. I've I've kind of watched news reports. You know, remember when this case first happened? I think I was maybe in eighth grade when it happened. I fucking hate that woman. Oh my god! I was I was like watching this, and I'm like, I'm, and I maybe it was the way it was played. Maybe she wasn't really, but I I don't even think I can give her the benefit of the doubt because it was just so horrendous watching this railroading that went on of these kids. These males terrorize bicyclists here. They put two guys in the hospital with head injuries here. A 50-year-old man they attacked here and a public school teacher jogging at the reservoir. And way up here, they brutally raped a woman and discarded her like a piece of garbage. Left her for dead. Bleeding, bound, naked. And to think we were going to release these animals to family court and put them back on the streets. 
And I think the scene that really tipped me over the edge is when one of the boys was being held and questioned and the mother who was sick comes in and confronts evil, horrible woman and says, this kid's underage. And she's like, show me the birth certificate. I'm like, fuck you. I'm going to punch you in the head. So I'm just, this Netflix show, this this four-part series was so upsetting I could hardly even watch it. But that woman made me so angry. And I know I'm not alone because the only thing that that made me sort of feel like somewhat better about that was when I was seeing things pop up in all my social media feeds about how she's kicked off some board of directors and her book publishing company dropped her. I was like, hmm, karma. Anyway, so, okay, done. (laughs) I really wish I could yell Brichter scale with the thunder right now. Whisper it. The Brichter scale. Perfect. Nicely done. Now, Toby, you sent me some notes that actually reflected some of the things that I thought, especially in the first two episodes. I think my mind changed as this continued on and we got to some of the fallout of this. The first two episodes were very much a what happened. And if you're really familiar with what happened, which I am because I've seen the documentary, but also I remember the news coverage very, very well of this whole story. And I remember at the time, you know, reading about, you know, the pushback and seeing the protests in the black community and feeling a lot of the feelings about how this didn't seem right at the time and seeing the, you know, Donald Trump stuff. The first two episodes were very much just a dramatization of that. And I wondered how I would feel if I were more like Laura and didn't know a lot about the case. But I know that you also know a lot about the case. What did you think of the first couple of episodes of this and the dramatization of those aspects of the story? Well, yeah, that's what I was thinking, too, is that I, you know, it's hard to put myself in the place of somebody who's coming into it cold. Yeah. I guess if you know, if you've seen that documentary, if you've read much about it, like all that stuff just kind of seems like it's, you know, it's ticking off different marks in the story. Mm. Right. It's and the way it's done is fine. Again, I think if you came into a cold, it would be probably more affecting, but it is kind of weird to see actors just sort of doing things that you've seen actually on tape with the real people doing the real thing. Mm. You know, I didn't, you know, one of the things that I thought like dramatizing it would add would be giving some more for some of the peripheral characters, uh, fleshing them out a little bit more or giving some more context to the boys' lives, which I didn't feel like they was was done really effectively Hmm. um so i i didn't think that piece of the writing was really strong you know i I agree with you about the dramatization especially about the kids and their lives before the arrest it was very telescoped and my if i have a, a problem with this my one quibble is that there was a lot of setup not a lot, a very short amount of setup in a very short amount of time where like, this is the kid who plays a musical instrument. This is the kid who has the tough older sister that wants him to stay in school. Because, you know, usually I, usually I just let everybody else go and take the lead. But, you know, today I was like, I want to step up. I'm going to do what I have to do. And I did. And I really feel like if I keep doing that, then I could really take first chair. I really do. <laughs> Angie sounded good today, too. Right, you got your music lesson out the way. You're a free man. Don't waste the spring break, Kev. Spring break's for relaxing, Angie. How about you relax your way into those dishes from last night before Mama gets home? I'm closing at work tonight. Don't wait up. This is the kid who has, you know, a learning disability right. and is interested in girls and is, you know, whatever. It was very, very brief, and it got because it, because it was so short, and I'm sure this had to do with just time. 
you know, I really appreciate the documentary spent so much time on the post-incarceration experience. I think that is where the real story was here. But what happened later was that the, as the characters would kind of come back, it was like because there wasn't enough of that setup, I had to remember, oh, yeah, this is the one who had the difficult relationship with the father. And this is the one who had the tough older sister. And the whole thing with Corey, with the, his trans sister, like that wasn't really introduced significantly until the episode about him. And I think that I'm gonna say, I can't believe I'm going to say this. I always say Netflix things are too long. This could have benefited from one episode that was more of like that had more of that prologue. Part of it's time, but I think part of it's also writing. Mm. I mean, I, I was thinking about Chernobyl and they do a really good job in that of very quickly giving you a sense of like a slightly deeper sense of people. Like I'm just thinking about like the young couple where the guy was the firefighter and the and the woman. And they very efficiently kind of show, a, I think, a more a relationship that you couldn't sum up in one sentence right. the way you just did with all these other relationships. Right. So I think part of that was was a failure of writing. And again, I mean, they've got bigger fish to fry, I think. But I, I just found that a little disappointing. I want to talk about the way that the movie tells the uh, story of the legal case, right? We have mm-hmm. the severed trials with so those two, right? Yep. And we have these four lawyers and we sort of see them working at cross purposes, but also together with each other. We have kids who have taped confessions to different degrees and one kid with no taped confessions. And then sort of the legal machinations of how this plays out and these moments in court that seem like that's going to go their way. And then the jury goes the other way. What do you think about sort of like the procedural legal stuff in this story? Well, I think it's really important because it's a big part of the case and the reason, you know, why they wound up in jail. Um, Why wouldn't the jury see the things the same way uh, that we see them now? Each of the four episodes has a distinctive theme. You have the uh, before and the arrest, and then you have the, the trial is the second one, and then you got four out of the five in their lives and their their struggles uh, in episode three, and then primarily Corey in the exoneration in four. You know, I'm always interested in sort of, you know, the historical dramatization of those kinds of facts. And, you know, I mean, who didn't yell out at the TV, Brady violation on the uh, on the sock? Uh, and then, you know, Pacey comes over for cross-examination. Is it Joshua? Joshua Jackson. Jackson. And uh, he's like, oh, sock? And I'm like, I, I know you want to do it, dude, but don't, you, you know, the first rule of cross-exam, don't do it, don't do it. Don't ask a question you don't know the answer to. Right. You know, would you find anything on the sock? What if he turned around and he said, yeah, I found your client's semen all over. You know, you just, there's so many things there you felt like you, you could win on appeal, but they just never, not either they didn't raise it, or I know that they did try to raise a lot of the um, coerced confession issues before trial and they just didn't go anywhere. Yeah. So, Laura, I want to get to Corey's episode because I really do think that up until that episode, whatever small issues I just had with like the storytelling of this, I was willing to set them aside and see them see them differently. Yeah. We see a story of a young man put into adult prison as a child, continuously being transferred farther and farther away from his family. Mm hmm. What did you think of that episode, and did you also see it as the heart of the story? Yeah, I, that was the episode where I actually had to keep like stopping and going to do something else, and then I was like, I got to just keep watching this. But I think that 
Corey Wise, I think that his case and what happened to him is really like the heart of the tragedy of this case. You know, from the beginning, it seemed like I wasn't sure if he could read um, or not read because there was some question. And that I started to think, oh, my gosh, this is like another Brandon Dassey as I was watching it. I later read he had some sort of a learning disability and maybe some hearing issues. But that that didn't really get, you know, totally fleshed out in the documentary. But his case was just so heartbreaking watching him just endure the beatings and the guards being such fucking assholes to him and him not wanting to tell his mother what happened putting on a brave face and and then there was the one guard who actually had a heart Roberts Robert you got the money? no that is the stuff you're gonna need for your new job you're going to be cleaning the day room and all the areas around it, okay? Come on, man. I can't go up there. And now she's going to hang me. Right, kid, you don't have to worry about that. Not while I'm around. That was when this story really hit a different level for me because I felt like his story was just so tragic on, for such an extended period of time on so many levels that I think it just highlighted everything that was wrong with the prosecution in this case. And I hate the rest of those fucking guards. I want to punch <laughs> them in the heads. Yeah, yeah. It was just, it was just heartbreaking. I did have one like small question with that whole dynamic with the guards. Not the, not the later guard, which was like the sadist, super sadistic guard, but one of the earlier guards who's also super sadistic, but to a different degree, is like, you know, what can you do for me? Uh-huh. And then later, like Corey gives him a candy bar, and I'm like. Is Corey just fundamentally misunderstanding this? Yeah. Or is this guard like really want candy bars? Because that's super fucked up either way. He wants something. He wants to start the leverage. Yeah. Or some sort of power. He wanted power, right? To me, that candy bar scene was so disturbing for that reason. Yeah. I I mean, I think he wanted wanted submission of some sort. In the documentary, like I think more than almost anything from any documentary I've ever seen, what happened to Corey, which is not detailed at all close to this. I mean, my memory is you kind of see him when he's exonerated and there's clearly like he's been through a lot more than those other guys have. And they talk about how he had a difficult time. And I think he says something about how being a child in an adult prison is they take advantage of you or whatever. It was so disturbing in the documentary that I was sort of, you know, wondering and at the same time dreading what they were going to do with his story. Mm. And then when in the third episode, he wasn't in it at all, it was like, okay, <laughs> you know, buckle up for the fourth episode. It's not going to be pleasant. It was tough. I mean, it was it was brutal watching. I don't know. It's just lack of empathy or lack of understanding of what's going on with people's lives on the part of the DA – the cops are our president to a certain extent. You better believe that I hate the people that took this girl and raped her brutally. You better believe it. Trump put his money where his mouth is by taking out this full page ad in four New York City newspapers. Bring back the death penalty. Trump spent 80. These are the consequences of things that they are setting in motion. And at least with the DA and the cops, they had to have questions. Mm. They could not possibly have been certain about this stuff. Yeah. 
and Linda Fairstein even like she has a a, a freaking opinion piece out this week, Ugh. like sort of defending herself and like they weren't all innocent. That's right. It's ridiculous. I uh, the thing that really upsets me about this story was how is how the messaging put out by the DA at the time and by Donald Trump, who was a very powerful media figure in New York. At this time, I mean, this is my growing up. Donald Trump would say things and like they would be on the front page of the newspaper. Like he's always been the person who inserts himself in these stories to try to make a name for himself, get on the brand of of one side or the other. That was always what he's been like. This is like well precedes him running for office and his taking out like the full page ad in the newspapers and all that stuff. It also tainted the victim's point of view of this case. I really believe it did because as far as I know, the victim is not 100% convinced by the exoneration, even though this man who confessed, confessed and his DNA was a match. It's so tragic and sad to me and like... Anybody who's tempted to say, like, why isn't this thing more about the victim? Like, you know, the victim has had a lot of coverage. And I'm not saying that she's not sympathetic. And I'm not saying that she doesn't deserve to, like, be a part of the story. I think she is a part of the story. But she's also a consequence. And I feel bad that she also sort of believes what she believes, or at least did last time she kind of went on record about this. Because she's also a victim of, like, all the fucked up shit that these people did in this city. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. It's hard to tell everybody's story. Does the victim get short shrift? I mean, as a character, probably. But, the you know, the focus of this docudrama are the five guys. Yeah. To put it sort of bluntly, the jogger is the victim, but is otherwise a spectator in the legal machinations of what happened to these boys. She isn't the one who prosecutes the case mm-hmm. and, you know, decides what their judgment you know, is going to be or does things to them while they're in jail. She comes in and, and as far as the story goes, she presents what she needs to present. But like, you know, like all crime victims, they end up just being, and to some extent, you know, in trials, the perpetrators, they end up being spectators to what is going on around them. Right. And the larger issue of, of justice moving. Could you say, you know, we could have had more of her, I suppose. But as far as this particular story... I don't know what more that character could add to the narrative right. than, you know, what they did. Well, they were sensitive enough. I mean, they showed how disabled she was. They yeah. showed the attack. It was brutal. But, yeah, I mean, this story is not hers. Right. The story of the woman who got raped in Central Park is hers. The story of what happened to these five boys is not hers. It's theirs. I mean, that is the focus of this piece. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Well, let's do what we do. Let's tell our audience, if they haven't yet, uh, from what I read today, When They See Us is the most watched piece of content put out in Netflix history. Every single day it's having like streaming, breaking streaming records. So if our audience hasn't seen it yet or hasn't tried watching it yet, thumbs up or thumbs down review. Would you recommend When They See Us to our fine listeners of Crime Writers On? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I'm going to say thumbs up, not because it's an easy watch, but I think it's an important watch. And I mean, if it had been a podcast, I would have been walking into like next year at this point. And I will tell you, when this ended, um, I, I like the last scene, I'm not going to give a spoiler. 
I actually burst into tears and everybody in my house came running in. What's wrong with you? And I was like, <laughs> oh, my God, what they did to these. I was like, I just it's it's heartbreaking. But I think that you should watch it for the awareness that you're going to get about the justice system in this particular case. Toby Ball, what about you? If you don't know much about the case, like you should definitely watch it. I have kind of mixed feelings about it. I'd give it a thumbs up. I, I think there are issues with it. I think it could have been better in certain places. But I think overall having that story be told is super important. Just know what you're about to head into. I agree. Actually, side more with Laura. Uh, I think this is definitely a thumbs up for me. When I started watching it, I was a little bit trepidatious because it sort of was like, okay, I'm putting you on this train and doing this real story, but it's just sort of being reenacted. And it felt like, okay, we're moving in this direction. And yes, there was like a little bit of, I'm sure it wasn't in like actual retconning, but there was a lot of like heavy handed dropping in of like Donald Trump tape and whatever tape, but he was an important character in the story. And, you know, my only quibble with that was that it was very much framed like he's our president now, which I don't think the filmmaker needed to do so heavy handed, even though it was a light touch, like it was still there for me. But contrary to like what I said about the first thing we listened to, this is not a thing that I will say you should watch because it's important. It's actually good. It's well told. It's beautifully acted. It's nicely put together. And yes, it's a super hard watch. That doesn't mean it's not entertaining. Laura Bricker crying at the end of this thing, me crying into this thing. The definition of entertaining was, did it move you? Did you want to go on? Did you want to see how it ended? Did you want to watch the next scene? The answer is yes. This is a really, really good film. For me, it gets a thumbs up. It's both important and well told. Despite the problems that I had with their first episode in particular, it gets better and better and better. And the fourth episode has an Oscar-worthy performance that everyone in America should see. And it just wraps up in such a moving way. Huge thumbs up for me. What about you, Kevin? Uh, I am also a thumbs up. A lot of times when you have a uh, a topic like this, the movie or the miniseries ends up being uh, what I'd call a, a message movie. And whereas the performances and the characters and their narrative is second to what the larger message is or the theme that the director is trying to put out. There's a million World War II movies like that. And this one, the message is powerful, but I think that the strength of the performances is such that it still is, I don't say it outshines the message, but it floats above the message and it's what you will remember. You, You will be upset with what happened to the boys. You'll remember what happened to them and how that made you feel because of these really powerful acting performances in part for some very young actors. Yeah. Um, everything about it is just really great and it, it does have a really moving ending, you know? They not to spoil it, but we already know they come home. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of, of the week. The week. In Slidell, Louisiana, they surely love their Taco Bell. I mean, who doesn't? Who can't get enough of that 88% beef with 12% proprietary recipe ingredients like Torula yeast and soy lecithin? 
Is that for real? <laughs> for real. <laughs> Someone did the research. But things got hot and spicy last week when a customer called 911 to complain that the Taco Bell had run out of taco shells. The caller told emergency services the restaurant had run out of both hard and soft shells. Law enforcement agreed this was a disturbing turn of events, but said no crime had been committed. In fact, a crime against your small intestine may just have been thwarted. Ouch. (laughs) All right, so panel, here's my question for you. It looks like the restaurant nearly dropped the chalupa on this one. (laughs) <laughs> what favorite restaurant menu item of yours would you consider it a crime to run out of? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. I've been coached. I'm going to go quick. Truffle salt. My favorite <laughs> burger place has truffle fries. And if they didn't have the truffle salt, I would lose my shit. <laughs> <laughs> What's the name of your favorite burger place, Laura? Uh, it is Lexi's Burgers. It is awesome. And the next time you come to Exeter, I'll take you there. You're on brand, Lexi's Burgers. Don't run out of truffle salt or Laura Bricker's going to lose her shit. What about you, Toby Ball? What favorite restaurant menu item of yours would you consider it a crime to run out of? Toby? 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 Hello? Oh, my God. He's watching basketball. No, no here. Hockey. What's the score? Uh, two nothing. <laughs> what an <laughs> asshole. Um... Self-incriminating. I was just going to say something off the top of my head real quick and, and just move on. But instead, I thought I should spend some time thinking about it and come up with an answer that was like truly profound and got to like sort of the core of what I'm all about. Yeah. Um, I think you should. I think you should. Yeah. But the answer is Dunkin' Donuts coffee. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Kevin Flynn? Where do you fall on the restaurant runs out of it? It's a crime spectrum. Well, I think this is a regional restaurant, so maybe not everybody's going to get it. But if at Friendly's, if they ran out of that peanut butter sauce for their <laughs> uh, ice cream sundaes, you know, the Reese's oh. Pieces ice cream sundae, if it, it, the chocolate's good, but yeah. if it didn't have the peanut butter sauce, call a SWAT team. Hmm. I got to go with, in March... McDonald's better not fucking run out of that shamrock shake. That's all uh, I'm going to say so about that. Oh, <laughs> Please tell me you're not eating that, Rebecca. Oh, God. No, I'm not, but I'm supposed to not say something deep. It's supposed to be short and pithy. Oh, for- well, that's pithy, all right. <laughs> oh, it's toxic. It's like toxic like Chernobyl, Rebecca. Kevin gives one production instruction, and we all rebel. We all rebel. <laughs> <laughs> all that's, right. what, that's what happens. <laughs> we should, Kevin, by the way... You give me the finger. I give you guys instructions all the time that you just blatantly ignore. Blatantly. We should probably end it on that note. Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? Uh, We have a dog this week, Rebecca. Because I'm keeping it mixed up just for you. And this is Jennifer Watson. I believe she's a member of the Brichter Scale or she's a member of our Crime Writers On group because I clipped this from one of those. Um, She sent me a picture of her happy little dog and it is called... This is Jogging Joshy, a.k.a. Asshole. He is my (laughs) runner partner. He is the best running partner. His longest run is six miles. He's done this distance many times. Right now, he does three to four mile runs because it's hot. They live in Florida. He earned the nickname Asshole because that's how he acts around anyone but his immediate family. He does not like other people, but he's the sweetest dog to us. I'm not nominating him for Dog of the Week until he stops being an asshole. Just wanted to share because yesterday was Global Running Day and he was happy to get some miles in. Jogging Joshy is Dog of the Week. 
Well, Laura Bricker, if somebody else does not want to nominate their dog or cat for pet of the week, but you want to do it anyway, <laughs> how can they reach you on Twitter to send you their asshole of an animal? At Laura Bricker. And tell you about if someone wants to reach out to you to give you a production instruction that you then intend to buck and completely ignore, how can they find you on Twitter? I'm uncoachable, Rebecca. <laughs> um, at Toby Ball NH. And by the way, just a note, stop fucking watching sports while we're recording this podcast. No, you know, that wasn't actually that. I, I had hit my, uh, I was adjusting I was adjusting my little uh, spit guard thing mm. and I hit mute by accident. I think he means his pop filter. And did he not know filter. that hockey game score, Kevin? Did he not know it? I, he did. I did know it. It's on the background. But, that, but I was like, I was like talking and you guys were like, Toby, Toby. And I was like, oh, shit. My, yeah. I, and I was like, did I mute myself? And I looked down and yeah, I'd like hit it by accident. The excuses I get out of my son about why I didn't do his homework. We all heard him just say that the game was on in the background, didn't we not? We did, yes. All right, Kevin yeah. Flynn. <laughs> Toby, stop it. Just stop. Kevin Flynn, if people want to reach out to you and help you dig an even bigger hole for Toby Ball to jump into, how can they find you online? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reblavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join the amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, by the way. Support the show on Patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media, and you'll get the Crime Writers On after show right now, which includes my interview with Jason Moon of Bearbrook. You'll also get Married with Podcast, the Toby Balls Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker slash Stalking Mayor Pete Podcast, and the Brichter Scale Rage Walking Facebook group entry. Our theme song was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with permission. This show was recorded at the Yoga Loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our basement where we keep all those leftover Taco Bell sauce packets. I like the mild myself, even though the fire is pretty lit. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. I have a story to tell you guys and an etiquette question. Okay. So I was pitching the fun drive tonight at my public radio station where I work. So in between our pitch breaks, which means like when the actual news or whatever show was on was on, like you, you have like a, depending on when it is, you've got like a five minute window or like a 12 minute window or like a six minute window and you have your time you have to be back. So there was this point tonight where I had to go to the bathroom really bad and I knew I had like six minutes. So I like go down the hall and go into the bathroom and there's someone that I know that I work with who like someone I know outside of work, but she just started working at my station and like we haven't gotten really to say hi yet. And she like said hi to me as I was walking in the bathroom and she's like, you sound really great. And she's just like still talking to me as I like go into the stall. And I'm like, oh, now I have to have that thing where I'm like going to the bathroom like while somebody is talking to me, which is weird. I hate that. Is this a one or a two? Well, this was the thing. I thought it might have to be a two. Uh-oh. Oh no! But so, then you have to make it a one. <laughs> I was sitting down and I was t- I was sitting down and I so one and a half. And she's like so great, and we were talking and whatever. And then I was like, you know what? Fuck it! I have four and a half minutes where I have to be on the radio. I let out the longest, most sustained fart of my adult <laughs> life. <laughs> and it turns well, out it was not a two. It was just the fart. <laughs> and and I at that point was like, do I just continue the conversation as if that didn't just happen? 
What do I do, Laura? What would you have done? Oh God! See, I would have just held it. I would have just held it. I, um, I had to be back I, on I the radio. I, I would have just been like, I would have just kept talking. <laughs> that's kind of like my sort of default for everything is yeah. I just keep talking. Yeah. What about you, Kevin? What would you have done? That would have ended the conversation. <laughs> Toby, did I do the right thing just by letting her rip? Yeah, I mean, the, that's the alpha move, right? Is you let it rip, and then you just keep talking as if nothing ever happened. <laughs> is that just how men just are in the world? I don't know. <laughs> I think the answer is yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this is some deep philosophical stuff that right off the bat. It is. It is. All right. You guys ready to record a podcast now that you're all warmed up? I don't even know anymore. We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn this thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton. For the stay.